0: That is, I wonder what, you've, what you rely on to make you feel secure. See, some of you will rely, and maybe this is right and to a degree, that you rely on your ability, uh, your minds. Whether you're at work or you're in a, a social situation, you think that with your great ability that and you probably can do this to a degree. You can, you can persuade people. You might even be able to manipulate people to a relative point of credibility. You might even call that safety. It brings you, though, a sense of security, doesn't it? And linked with that kind of security blanket is the fact that some of you, because of your minds and your abilities, you've got good jobs. They'll bring in good wages. So you'll spend to secure your place amongst your peers. Hey, look at me, aren't I doing okay? And also, you might even save a bit as well, just, just to kind of have a bit of a security buffer for the future. That is, you feel that you can buy your way out of trouble to a degree. Your money, your wealth keeps you secure. And for some of you, it might be just you know, your property, your equity that you have in a, in a property that you own. That will bring you a sense of security, won't it? For some of you, it's just the fact that you're those kind of diligent personalities. My father-in-law is one of these people. He is careful about everything. If he was travelling to London, he would probably travel a week early. Just in case he missed the meeting. It's a kind of contingency. That's what I call, I call him, Mr. Contingency. You know, you're the kind of person that double locks every door, you put, always put the alarm on. You risk assess going to the kitchen. You're no the kind of people. And we live in a culture, don't we? It's encouraged the blossoming of industries to play on those kind of insecurities. But, but for some of you, it'd be other things, won't it? That you are a parent. Or that you turn to your parents. They're your secure, There's your security blanket. You know that whatever happens to you, you can turn to them. For others, it'll be friends, I'm sure. See, where we find our security is a very personal issue. But it's also an issue corporately and also nationally as well. Where will we find our security? As, for example, church changes a bit. We change time. Some people might come, some people might go. Where do we find our security? More widely, why do do so many countries spend so much money on on defence, for example? We need security. We feel that need, don't we? And we know that need. So nationally, do do we now look to this majority government as the answer to all those kind of deep-rooted realities? Mm -hmm. One indicator shows that this is a very current issue for our our country is the fact that something like anxiety and depression is an epidemic of our time, as it was recently described in the Telegraph. See, we may be more wealthy than we've ever been before in this country, but there are more cases of clinical depression, and, and we are, for various indicators, the unhappiest that we've ever been. What about you, though? What do you rely on to make you feel secure? And how is that thing that you're relying on working out? Is it that dependable? See, this question matters. It matters really now. And it mattered then. As we look at the context here in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 8. Because it's an extraordinary expose of people who really just wanted security. And that is... Underneath their request for the king that you saw there in verse 5. Now, it's a bit of an aside, but I think it's helpful. Have you ever noticed how the Bible functions in two very particular ways? Of course, it reveals something about God to us, doesn't it? But it also reveals to you something about you. And 1 Samuel 8 is particularly helpful in that. Here's a bit of background, a bit of summary. The people request a king, you saw that there, verse 5, they they wanted security, who were they going to rely on? And given the context and what we know of the time, you can kind of understand their anxiety. They were living in a time of huge change. Now I know we just had an election, it was all very exciting and there's a bit of change going to happen, isn't there? Especially for those who work up there in, in government and so on. But any change that you experience, that we experience as a nation, that's nothing. Absolutely nothing in comparison to what was happening in 1100 BC in this area. And uh, to be honest, also around the world. Of course, you historians, you'll know this is the beginning of the Iron Age. So where before, you know, let's give one example of warfare, for example. It was very local. It was tribal. Yes, of course, it was bloody, but the, the numbers of deaths, were, they were small. Limited geographically, limited in kind of death toll. But now, Iron Age, warfare is suddenly expanding massively in scope and in death toll. Wars have become, of course, much more mobile. Iron chariots were used. that The Bronze Age chariots of before. They just got crushed in the wake of the iron chariots. But you see, in the context of the people that, that we're, we're seeing here, God has proved himself to these people again and again and again. He is... Well, very easily capable of protecting them, whatever circumstance they get into. Just think back to last week, in chapter 7. He brought great victory, didn't he, amongst his people? Rescued the ark, Israel. what they do, though? They find themselves outgunned and feeling insecure a few years on. There's only a few years between chapter 7 and chapter 8. And they say, well, everyone else has got a king that leads them into battle with iron swords. Why not us? That is the question. That's behind the question, certainly, in verse 5. Now, you will know that to this point, God had provided regional judges to lead his people into battle. We are nearing the end of the time of judges. If you want to go back to that history, go back to the book of Judges. But right now, the people feel incredibly vulnerable, given the time, given the nations around them and the progress they were making. Samuel himself has this kind of dual role. He's the priest judge. Um, So what was going to happen? Who would the people rely upon to be secure? Now the first few verses, they're very interesting. Look at those. Look down with me at verse 1 to 3. And you'll see they make it very clear that Samuel and his family, they're not the option. The people aren't going to look to them to feel secure. Let's look at verse 1 to 3. We see there that Samuel's sons... Verse 3, they're corrupt, dishonest gain, they accept bribes and so on. So Joel and Abijah, however you pronounce that name, they've got no future. They weren't fit for this role of leading God's people. Now these verses, it's interesting, verse 1 to 3, even many commentators, they, kind of, they just sort of skip over them as a kind of a contextual introduction to this kind of chapter, a setting of the scene before Israel requests their king. But I think... Verse 1 to 3, and I think one or two people will agree with me, is they are so critical in our times. Because they expose probably one of the most popular sources of security that people search for in our culture today. You see, if Samuel thought the security of Israel lay with his sons, clearly mistaken. And if you think that your security and the security of your children lies with your skill as a parent, well, I hope Samuel is a warning to you. Of course, Samuel does warn against bad parenting. Do you remember Eli? Back a few chapters now. He loses his children because he fails to discipline them. They stole the sacrificial meat and Eli enjoyed that too. And it was the stupidest of sins that you could possibly imagine them to do. You may as well put in a footnote in the Bible, how dumb can you possibly be? Because there they are, they're living in a a culture where there wouldn't have been much uh, kind of fatty foods. There they are, stuffing themselves with this sacrificial fatty meat. And what would happen? Well, the signs would be very, very clear for all to see. Eli and his sons got very, very big. Their sins were very, very obvious. Eli then falls off his chair and it actually says because he was very heavy, he broke his neck and died. But it's clear that he refused to discipline his children. And as a result, they died in an untimely manner too. I can't see anywhere within 1 Samuel that kind of this passive parenting is ever condemned. Samuel, however, doesn't get a bad write-up. Anywhere in the book, he's he's held up as this crude, godly leader. And therefore, we must assume that, yes, he would have taught his boys of the Lord to fear God, to obey him. But you get to verse 3 of our chapter today, and what do you see? Well, Joel and Abedur are wicked. And if you're a parent, uh, I'm sorry if you're not, but many of you will be in the future, I guess. If you're a parent, please note this. Parents with young children often do this, and I put my hands up to this as well. And they look to people with older children and they'll say to themselves, perhaps just in their own minds, my children will never be like that. Oh. Well, I will gently warn you, and I think Samuel's a warning to you as well. Do not be too hasty. The skills to manage a baby change nappies and so on, are not the same as to bring up a teenager. There is no guaranteed process here. I think that's the point. If your children are not living in the way that you thought they would, one, Samuel knows your pain. and like Samuel, maintain a godly fear and work to bring them up to know and love the Lord Jesus. And most importantly, keep praying. Likewise, if you're looking back to your parents and saying it's all their fault. I will just say, take some responsibility. It is an epidemic in our area. Parenting, having children is not the place to find security. And you can never, ever pin your hopes on it. The point in our text is, is that, you know, in the family line of Samuel, it, the answer is not going to be found. And the people know that. You see that why they very quickly transfer to verse 5 and they request Samuel to to find a king. Now, according to uh, Deuteronomy, make a note of this and have a look at it later. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14 to about verse 20. To ask for a king, that's not the problem in itself. Moses actually anticipated the people of God asking for a king. But Deuteronomy 17 makes it clear that God expects that king to come But certainly not to be like every other king of all the nations. He must be chosen by God, first and foremost. And also, he must obey the law of God. People requesting a king is not the problem here. It's the motive behind the request. Or, it's what they want from the king. And you see that in verse 20. It's what they perceive other nations get from a king that drives them to approach Samuel. Israel, well, they want a hero. Someone they can say, "Hey, look at our guy. He's bigger than your guy." And Samuel, of course, sees this, and he knows their hearts, and he pleads to them on on two or three occasions to reconsider this, please. Look down at uh, verse 11 to 18 if you can very quickly. We're not going to go through this section much today. But have a look at it. It's, it's interesting. He's, what Samuel does in that section, verse 11 to 18, in a whole number of ways, he spells out for them what it will look like if they get a king. And the reality is awful. And essentially he's saying, if you want a quick ticket back to slavery, just go back to Egypt. This is the way you're going to get it. If you get a king. But despite Sam's best efforts. Despite him very lovingly. Warning his people. The people of God. Showing them how worse off they will be. Unbelievably. They still want a king. Well that's the chapter in essence. That's it. And normally as you well know. If you're a regular here. What I would do is I kind of walk through. Verse by verse and section by section. But. You wouldn't get the essence of the passage as easily that way, I don't think. And the challenge is this I don't know if you noticed it as Felicia read it. Um, it really is a three way conversation between Samuel and the Lord, and then between Samuel and the people, and then the people back to Samuel, and then Samuel back to the, the Lord again. And you've got this kind of three way conversation that's going on. And I, there's a whole bunch of things that we can learn from this. I'm going to pick two. I've put them down on your sheets there. I hope they're very practical and very applicable for us today. Let me show you quickly what they are. I think it shows us this chapter and warns us. There is a futile search for godless security. I think we know that and I'll hopefully point out how we see that in the text. Secondly, I think there's a dangerous assumption that getting what you want is good for you. Getting what you want is good for you. So firstly, let's look at that first point, the futile search for godless security. Now, one author I was reading uh, really helpfully put it this way. It it basically exposes our passion for substitutes, for putting things in between us and God. Because, you see, asking asking Samuel for a king is essentially saying, I'm going to reject God as king. It's the same thing God points that out in verse 5 as they ask. Verse 7, look at it. God says to Samuel, It's not you they've rejected, they've rejected me. In verse 8, I don't know if you have a look down there, God spells out the people's track record on this, and it's not good. The people are rejecting God and his ways. See, God was the one who was meant to appoint the leader, the judge. The position of leader wasn't going to be passed down from father to son, which is what would happen if a king were appointed. There would be heirs to the throne, as there would be from now on. God's way was that the judges were appointed by him, and he would deliver his people in and through them, as he did again and again and again through the time of the judges. We read that and looked at that a few months ago. I don't know if you remember. Do you remember Gideon? Back in Judges chapter 8. Let me read a couple of verses, how he kind of spelt this out for the people. The Israelites said to Gideon, this isn't a new thing, okay? Judges chapter 8. Rule over us, you and your your son and your grandson in a line as heirs, because you saved us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon told them, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. See the, the point is God God ruling with his appointed judge should be enough for the people. What well, the people have in here in 1 Samuel 8 is enough. And Gideon understood that. But the people here do not. And even last week, as you remember, in 1 Samuel 7 verse 10, as the Philistines drew near to Israel for battle, it's a scary situation. What happens? Do you remember? God, with his mighty sound, panics the Philistines. They flee. The Israelites saw God's in control. God is enough. But now, just one chapter later, they reject him. If you've looked forward in 1 Samuel, you will know that in the following weeks, through the appointment of the king, it is clear you cannot replace God with anything or anyone. And this isn't just a practical issue of kind of leadership, world well, politics. This is a deep, heart wrenching spiritual issue that you face and I face every day of our lives. The people of Israel are, are ripping God out of elements of their lives. They're making someone else king. They want someone else to be Lord. They want someone else to call the shots. And the problem with that is that none of us are designed to cre- or created to bear the weight of that role. The role of ultimate security has a weight. A weight of glory. C.S. Lewis puts it in his famous book. That will crush anyone other than God. But what does this mean for us today? As you, you know, here in Wimbledon Park, Southfields or Earlsfield. Practical and political solutions, which is what the people are looking for here. You know, they will not provide us something that we all want and need in the battles of our lives. Oh, we'll all build up securities around us. We've got those things, whether it's our money, our background, our education, our family, and we we feel safe behind those things, don't we? We don't want to be let down. Money will only go so far, though, will it? Won't it? Friends will only go so far. And our families, they'll protect us to a degree. That's a good thing. We want, though, to take something into our marriages that gives us a security for the future. We want to take something as we go and visit a friend or a loved one in a hospital when the news is bad that won't let us down. And we want to take something into the office, don't we, when we know that our boss is going to absolutely rip into us. We need something that's more than what we've got right now. See, one Samuel 8 reminds us that These are not just leadership struggles. This is a spiritual issue, something that we can't practically muster up ourselves. We're made in the image of God and for His glory, and that should alone provide us with all the security within our lives. God is enough. That is what is being shouted out in these last two chapters of 1 Samuel. The problem we have is that we all turn our backs on Him. We all rebel. Bible says we all sin, of course. And our sin is the reason that we feel this absence of security in our lives. In our rebellion against God, we have run from the one from whom we are made and for whom we are made, where all our security ought to come from. So it's no wonder that we begin to feel insecure in various elements of our lives. I remember a few years ago, I've told you this Story before, I lost Zach, my youngest boy. He was quite young; he's about three. I lost him in Gatwick Airport. Um, you know, like the busy terminal area. No panic, obviously. I told him to wait in a certain place. He didn't. He disobeyed. He ran off. It wasn't because I was careless; it's because he was stupid. <laughs> and spiritually, we do the same. We ignore God. We run off and we can find ourselves aimlessly kind of wandering around, grabbing at any leg that we can find for some security, wondering if it might be the leg of our parents, and that's exactly what Zach was doing. Spiritually, that's us, isn't it, sometimes? See how relevant this is? We might not look at other nations like the people of God were here, you know, looking out and saying, oh, they've got that, they've got that. No, but we do look at other people, don't we? And those insecurities that we feel breed envy. And if you're anything like me, they breed discontentment too. We say things like this, don't we, in our hearts. We say, if only I had that. If only, if only, if only. only I had their money, be fine then. If only I had that property, be fine. If only I had that car, that relationship, if only, if only. And do you see how that search for kind of godless security is so futile? Do you see how destructive it is for you and for so many? We need to remind ourselves what God has given us, not what God in his loving fatherly care has withheld from us. One point of choice of Jesus coming and by a spirit uh, residing in our hearts, if we have faith in him, is this. He's the one you take to your boss as you trust in him and his sovereign care. He's the one you take to the hospital as you show that loved one That in him there is eternal life and forgiveness of sin. You take him home with you when you're lonely. You take him with you when you're in pain. You take him with you when you're sad. He is with you and he is absolutely enough. He will never leave you and he will never forsake you. Matthew 6, verse 31 and 32, Jesus warns his listeners to not be like those around them. They're looking for security. There are three things there, of buying clothes, eating and drinking various things. And what does Jesus say? He says, don't worry. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Just like one Samuel 8. You see, we won't find our ultimate security by buying food and clothes and, and fine drinks, but... Being married and having children, earning well. Jesus just says, "Trust me, and my kingdom power." It brings forgiveness of sin and eternal life. Let me finish this point by this. Um, one of the greatest film series of the last decade has to be the Born series, beginning with Born Identity. All the men are shaking their heads and nodding for Yeah, women are kind of nonplussed about it, but there we go. Work with me on on this if you can. If you look past all the big car chases and the big fights, what is that film or that series of films essentially about? Don't say music score, although it's amazing. But what is it about? It's a search for who that man is. This man is called Jason Bourne, isn't he? And if if you think through the three films, if you've watched them, He has a greater anxiety about knowing who he is than in being in comparison to being in a a room full of gun-wielding assassins come to get him from the CIA. He's more anxious about who he is than a bunch of assassins. Few assassins, they're a mere inconvenience for Jason Bourne. It's all over. But the thing that stops him sleeping. The thing that he dedicates his, his life to is to find out who he is. Now, why does that grip us so much? See, we're not trained CIA assassins. Not sure, but and we're not. But we have the same questions. What is my life for? What have I been put here for? And the insecurity can torture us. And we need to begin to see that the greatest stress and anxiety we feel is because we don't know the answers to these questions or, more pertinently for many of us, we just don't trust the answers we've been given by God. Be thankful that you don't have to go to a man who's tortured and manipulated you to, to become a lethal assassin. Rather, we go to a loving creator, Father God, who is running to you now Arms outstretched, waiting for you to come home, home in his love, home under his loving rule. Read Luke 15 if you want to see why. Remember, as we'll see over the coming weeks, it doesn't matter how good or big or strong the king is that you replace God with. The security that you put around you, it doesn't matter how big or strong that is. Because ultimately it's futile to trust in godless security. Stop searching and trust God. Second point, uh, more briefly, the dangerous assumption that getting what you want is good for you. Now, the guy I mentioned earlier, he just put it this way. It's our immunity to wisdom. And you see it through uh, this passage, especially in verses 11 to 18. Because what Samuel says and appeals to the people makes absolute sense. It's wise. But the people are immune to that wisdom. What about us? See, Samuel outlines, it, doesn't he, the implications of what it's going to look like if they get what they ask for. A king like other nations. The people, though, we see again and again, twice. They're set on their plan. But I hope you see how truly frightening it is. Let's, uh, a quick run through what happens. It, uh, let me give you an outline before I make one particular point. Samuel isn't happy with them requesting a king. They see that in verse 6. Verse 7, God says to Samuel, gobsmackingly, obey the voice of the people. Listen to them. Samuel then warns them, verse 11, through to 18, in obedience to God's request of him to warn them in verse 9. And then you get to this last little section, verse 19 to the end. The people refuse to listen in verse 19, verse 20. They want to be like the other nations. Verse 21, some goes back to the Lord. The conversation continues. And verse 22, again, it's so chilling. Look at it. Listen to them. Give them a king. See, if this were a film, I wonder what the music score would be as you get to the end of verse 22. You know the kind of dramatic build-up? These conversations flying back and forth between the people and the Lord, and then boof, boof. You know, it was something like really dramatic as it ends. But it's chilling. And I hope you see why. See, God makes it very clear in verse 7 that requesting a king is, is a rejection of him. But God's response is so extraordinary. Because he gives them exactly what they want. Samuel sends them home, next chapter the king's appointed. Now you've got to think, I wonder whether you felt this as you are reading it through. I wonder if you thought, what on earth is God doing here? Has he gone all soft? No. What God is doing here is what he does elsewhere in the Bible on a number of occasions and many of you will know the, the occasion in Romans 1. He hands them over. He hands them over to get exactly what they want. That is... He says, in giving you exactly what you want, you will get the consequences of your own stupidity. And that will be enough for you. And it was. You see, pushing a door that you know is not what God wants, or or more popularly, you know, saying that, oh, if a door opens in your life, it must be what God wants and I'll walk straight through it. Well, I'm I'm sorry to say that isn't biblical at all. The path of least resistance is not always the right one. You know, if some, many of you will say, well, you've heard this, I'm sure. Oh, it feels right. It must be of God. That is nonsense, biblically. I put that in terms of relationships. If you find yourself single and you'd love to be married, but falling in love with someone, someone who God makes very clear in his word is inappropriate for you, having mutual feelings of affection and so on, it's not always good for you. In terms of a career, you may be meeting with your boss and your boss is kind of laying out your kind of career path and you're looking, well, that could earn me this and I could get that house and I could do all these things. Well, it happens in church ministry too. And God might actually say, you know, he might answer a yes in the arena of your work or your relationships, but the dangerous assumption that you have may, may have made is that getting what you want is good for you you must realize that god may just have handed you over to what you've ignorantly and blindly been working for you see if you dare to listen to god's voice if you dare to read his word and listen to godly men and women around you you may never have even prayed for that relationship that job that move, that house, that car. I guess it begs the question, doesn't it? What, what should we pray for? I guess the biggest factor should be that our prayers should be driven by the word of God, first and foremost, rather than our feelings or unhelpful comparisons. Look what they've got. The people knew they didn't need a king. That is what Samuel had been telling them and they should have listened. If you're a Christian here today, let me just make one, uh, a couple of points if I can. I, if you're single, you need to know that if you die single, you do not miss out. You need to know that if you die having little or no savings or little equity in property, a rusty car or, or no car, you're not missing out. None of these things are wrong. None of these things are wrong to pray for. Marriage, children, property, none of these things. Uh, But it isn't and it cannot be your ultimate security. Ask Solomon if you don't believe me in the terms of marriage. If you remain in your current job for the next 30 years earning the same amount of money that you are now but you have more time to read and to pray and to cherish the Lord Jesus Christ, you will not miss out. We ought to be praying more for patience and peace than we do for promotion and prosperity. And just, you know, maybe you're justifying yourself and you think, ah, oh, my life has flourished and I've kind of ignored God about all these issues. It doesn't mean it will last. It certainly won't eternally. Don't think you've got your life right because you drive this or you live in that, that so you have X and you've produced Y. My encouragement, I hope the encouragement of one Samuel later is be humble and turn back to God. He will be your king now and eternally in his love, or he will be your king eternally in his justice. Has he handed you over? Or are you in his arms? Two lessons therefore from 1 Samuel 8. Be warned of the futile search for godless security. And be warned of the dangerous assumption that you may have made. That getting what you want is good for you. Shall we pray to close? Heavenly Father, of a story 3,000 years old or more, there is so much that we can learn. So please give us humble hearts. Give us time and inclination over the next hours and days to mull over where in our lives that we have perhaps been on the search for security in our lives outside of your goodness and kindness and outside of the provision of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we know that in him we have everything that we need. Everything that we could ever want in fact. And yet too often we look for our meaning and our security elsewhere. Please forgive us for that. It's not wrong to enjoy the many good things that you've given us in this life. But yet when we put them in the primary position of our lives. We know things can go so wrong. So please help us to exalt Christ, to promote him and you to primary position. May we seek security and comfort and safety in you and in you alone, I pray. Amen.